Everyone, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We're going to focus this week's episode on urology. We'll open up with an interview I did with the startup Zenflow. Specifically, I spoke with Nick Damiano, co-founder and CEO, and Zenflow's newly hired president, Susan Stimson. We'll talk about some news they have on the clinical trial front. Then later on, I had a chance to speak with Megan Scanlon. Megan is a senior vice president at Boston Scientific. She's also president of the urology and pelvic health business there. Lots going on at Boston Scientific. We talked about their recent acquisition of Luminous, about the rise of single-use endoscopes, and about why I should drink lots more water. It's a great episode. I know you'll enjoy it. Before we begin, though, I'd like to thank our sponsor, KNF, for stepping up and supporting the Device Talks weekly podcast. We'll hear from KNF a little later in the program. Let's go. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Chris Newmarker this week, he continues to be on vacation, so we uh, we put out a call for all hands, and we've got a, a full squad today. Joining us at uh, at the start is uh, is Sean Hooley, he's associate editor at uh, at Mass Device. We have Brian Bunce, our pharma editor, returning, and joining us for the first time, we have Jim Hammerand, our newly minted managing editor of Medical Design and Outsourcing. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, Tom, thanks for having me. Uh, I think I mentioned the other day, my uh, daughter and I, when I'm driving her to daycare, she's a, she's a year and a half old, but we listen to the podcast on the way in. And uh, I think she might have the record for the uh, youngest listener. <laughs> I, I had a colleague who used to tell me she'd listen to my, my other podcast at night when she wanted to go to bed. So uh, that was that was very comforting that I was I was putting her to sleep. So well, don't 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 get too down on yourself. You know she she gets pretty into her highlights magazine. <laughs> but you know what got her to you know what got her attention? What was whenever you and Chris Newmarker talk about pumpkins. Loves pumpkins. We hate pumpkins. Very into pumpkins. She, she doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to her. She wants to hear more pumpkins. She actually wanted me to share that note with you, uh, if you don't mind. That's very funny. No, actually, we, we do like pumpkins. It's pumpkin ale and pumpkin sausage. So I'm sure she's not having pumpkin ale, and I and I won't argue with a, a little girl about pumpkin sausage if she likes them. Then that's fine with me. I know. Uh, let's get into the new markers, newsmakers, because I know uh, I know we've got full day here on Friday. We're actually recording this one on Friday, so. Uh, We'll roll in. We've got Sean Hooley. Sean, hey, thanks for joining us. No Ted Lasso spoilers, okay? I got to watch the final episode. Uh, you just got to catch up, man. It's been a week. I'm waiting for the whole, get the whole family together. They we're, all, yeah. we're all in different directions, and this is the one show we watch together, so uh, it'll happen. And, uh, and Brian Bunch, you're going uh, to drop some, uh, some vaccine knowledge on us a little later, right? Yeah, there was a recent Moderna FDA meeting. Like the the verb pack convened again. I guess actually they're meeting today about the Janssen vaccine as well. So awesome. We'll we'll catch up a bit. So let's just hit the Newmarker's newsmakers first. Uh, Jim, why don't you play the uh, play the role of Chris Newmarker and, and start to count us down? Number five, Global Healthcare Exchange acquires Explorer Surgical. Sean. This was from yesterday, uh, Thursday, the 14th. Global Healthcare Exchange will acquire Explorer Surgical and it will operate as its wholly owned subsidiary to uh, combine some cloud-based offerings and 
you know, Explorer Surgical recently announced that they're moving into the robotic surgery space. So it should be interesting to see what they kind of come up with. I know, Tom, you you have a lot of knowledge on the situation. Yeah, I've had the chance to speak with Jennifer Fried a few times. In fact, she was the first uh, advertiser on the podcast. We had a chance to tell Explorer Surgical story uh, last year, and clearly it it, uh, it helped them a great deal because they got acquired. And uh, it's uh, it's a cool story, though. They, they started the company as a way to, to sort of create a, a, a an online dashboard, if you will, for, for surgical procedures. Then COVID hit and they were able to pivot and make it uh, a device or a system that can be used to uh, to give access to the ORs from folks on the outside of the OR who couldn't uh, who couldn't make it in there for COVID or for other reasons. So they've really found different ways to uh, utilize their platform. And I'm really curious to hear how they're going to fit into global healthcare exchange. They're talking about uh, helping healthcare providers uh, with their supply chain challenges. So we're, we're hoping to have uh, both Jennifer and a uh, representative from Global Healthcare Exchange on the podcast in a couple of weeks to uh, to help spell it out a little bit for us. So uh, so good news for Explorer and uh, CEO Jennifer Fried. Jim, what is uh, what's number four on this uh, auspicious list? Number four is back to Sean again. Varian wins FDA breakthrough approval for microspheres that treat knee osteoarthritis. Nice. Sean? So Varian, a Siemens Health Nears company, they design these for genicular artery embolization, or GAE for short, uh, treats symptomatic knee osteoarthritis. The treatment already holds FDA clearance for treating hypervascular tumors, arteriovenous malformations, uterine fibroids, and benign prostatic uh, hyperplasia. So this treatment is designed to reduce the blood flow of periarticular tissue of the joints and limits the inflammatory process. So these microspheres are you know, being used for a new purpose and seems like a pretty interesting innovation. That was probably the most technically challenging sentence we've ever uh, had uttered here on the podcast. Sean. So. I'm, I'm patting myself. On the <laughs> well done. I was waiting for you to say, hold on a second. I need to restart, but you used, you sailed right through. You're, you're, you're a true professional. <laughs> hey everyone, Tom here. It's my pleasure to bring in our episode's sponsor, KNF. I'm here with Dave Vanderbeck, Product Group Manager at KNF. Dave, tell us about KNF. KNF is a designer and manufacturer of diaphragm and piston pumps for gases and liquids. We serve the OEM, laboratory, and process industries, and our markets include medical primarily, but we are also heavily involved into environmental, analytical instruments, cleaning and disinfection, printing, and many more. How would I describe KNF? Well, basically, we are a large, engineering-driven, family-owned company. KNF is Germany and Switzerland-based, with 17 locations and five production sites, including our USA manufacturing facility that handles sales, most manufacturing and service for North America. But I have to say that engineering is really at the core of our design philosophy. This is what separates us from other pump manufacturers is our passion to customize our pumps design so that we could optimize the customer's system. We do this by establishing a close collaboration with our customers so that we may learn what pump features will allow them to design a system that will meet all of their engineering and marketing department's goals. Then we make use of our 75 plus years of experience and our modular designs 
to custom tailor the pump to the application. And in fact, we've been doing this process for so many years that we've actually refined the design and modification process to the point that we can do it efficiently and without adding cost for one piece or thousands. And then, which is important to medical as well as other fields, we can freeze the bill of materials for these customized designs that are then proprietary to the customer. So in the end, we achieve success by contributing to making the customer's system a success. That's great, Dave. We'll hear a little more from KNF a little later in the podcast. If you want to find out some if you want to find out some more information, go to knf.com. Well, Nick Damiano and Susan Stimson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you, Tom. My pleasure to have you both. Uh, would love to dig into the uh, the ZenFlow story. We're focusing on urology on the podcast this week. Nick, take this opportunity to tell us a bit about your background, the origin of the company, and then we can get into uh, in, into what ZenFlow has uh, has created. Yeah, so I started off as an engineer along with Shreya Mehta, the other founder. Um, we met at Stanford Biodesign back in 2013 to 2014, and we're looking at clinical needs in the area of urology. Spent a lot of time in the Stanford ORs and clinics and just talked to lots of urologists and patients. And we saw that a lot of, a lot of men were coming in with BPH or enlarged prostate, and it was a big quality of life issue for them. They were not sleeping. It was really disrupting their daily lives, and they didn't like the solutions being offered. So we thought about it a little bit and, you know, tried to understand what the need was and came up with a solution that we thought would be less invasive, but also very effective for treating BPH. And uh, that's what led us to start ZenFlow. We thought this device had a lot of potential to be an easier solution, more patient-friendly solution. And um, for the last seven years, I've been developing this product and building the company. I like to get into the product in a moment, but I'm just curious about the process. Did you talk to patients themselves or did you talk to doctors and kind of get that information secondhand? I'm just uh, always fascinated about the uh, the startup process. It was both. It was always very patient-driven where we just met lots of men that were waiting for something better to come out. They didn't like the BPH drugs. They were not really eager to go and get surgery, which involved a really invasive procedure that mm -hmm. poured out most of the prostate. They didn't want to do that. There were lots of side effects like sexual dysfunction they were trying to avoid. And it was pretty clear they would go for a less invasive solution if there were, were one that were offered. Uh, the urologists also were looking for things they could do in the office that were easier and um, also you know, easier as far as having good patient outcomes and not having patients come back with lots of problems afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so that really led us to hone in on this need of something that was was less invasive and just better for for all the the stakeholders involved. Do the uh, urologists perform the surgery as well or are those two different types of uh, physicians? At least in the US they tend to both see patients in clinic and perform procedures in, okay. in other countries it may be different. So tell us about your uh, about your solution. So the spring system is a Small uh, nitinol, which is a super elastic material, coil-like or spring-like implant. So it's called the spring. It's It looks like a spring. Um, it involves, it just goes in with a, a flexible scope. So it's a sort of catheter-like system that has visualizations so the urologist can watch it going in. And then mm -hmm. this 
spring-like implant just gently pushes back the prostate to eliminate the blockage and let patients void more easily. Interesting. All right. Well, that's uh, that sounds like a, a, a simple sort of one of those simple solutions to uh, to to a huge problem. It sounds like a nice a nice fit for uh, for medtech. Where is the where is the product? Uh, well, we'll talk about clinical trials later on, I guess. But you're currently in, enrolling a, a pivotal clinical trial, correct? Yes, we are. We just started in the last month enrolling this study, which is going to involve um, uh, about twenty to twenty five centers in the U.S. and and overseas. Outstanding. Susan, I'd love to, to bring you into the conversation. You recently joined uh, Zenflow, but you've got uh, an enormous background in, in startups and, uh, and was uh, involved in the early, the early starting of Intersect ENT, which of course is in the process of being acquired by Medtronic. How did you, uh, I'd love to just kind of get a recap on your Intersect ENT experience. How did you get involved in that? And, and when did you get involved in the creation of that company? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, Intersect ENT had just raised its Series A um, when I became familiar with the company. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd been in large companies and and startup companies. Uh, had a had a foundation in guidance, which uh, it was uh, so fortunate, and uh, and then moved to the startup world. And Dana Mead from Kleiner Perkins, um, or who was at Kleiner Perkins at the time, and Casey Tanzi at USVP were pulling a band back together, if you will, <laughs> of, of uh, yeah, former uh, guiding colleagues that had drug-eluting stunt experience and to apply it to the ear, nose, and throat specialty. Um, and they place value on, on bringing commercial perspective in from the start, which was really important to me as well. So I joined with the first handful of employees. And over the subsequent 12 years, not only had the opportunity to develop and execute the initial commercial strategy, but launch the first product, uh, oversee launch of multiple products, scale commercially, take the company public, expand internationally. I eventually led its transition from device to drug company. And you know that perspective gained over so many stages was uh, fortunate. Um, we grew from zero to over 100 million in sales from that handful of employees from the start to hundreds of employees. So, uh, and you know, importantly, got to work alongside a very talented leader, um, Lisa Earnhardt. Just has a knack for doing things right and setting a model for success. So, you know, that experience that I recognize is so fortunate and, and unique. And especially at the time we went public, it was a very unique opportunity, but to see it build over time, again, it's, it's just something that I, I want to infuse in, in more and, and mm-hmm. keep doing. Great. Now, Lisa's a, a favorite of the podcast, and and, and uh, I've forgotten about your 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 time at guidance. I imagine you guided people. Do you like invite each other to each other's weddings and, and rent vacation <laughs> homes together? Everyone's so darn happy at guidance. Uh. <laughs> you know, it is. I I know it, it's probably been mentioned many times on your podcast, but it is a fond memory memory for for many on the team. I think. You know, one of the things I'm I'm also proud of, and is maybe a topic for another podcast. But some of my former guiding colleagues and I, and especially led by Amy Ramundo and Deb Kilpatrick, founded MedTech Women with oh, the sure. goal of highlighting um, female executives in our field, which which is prevalent. But uh, we founded it ten years ago when, for you know whatever reason, and and we don't think intentional, but. The female representation just wasn't where it needed to be on podiums, panels, 
um, you know, even in some leadership roles. And so it's a nice uh, success story of some former guiding colleagues as well. I never made the guiding connection on that. No, that's a great program. Did you folks have an in-person meeting this year or? uh... We just had a virtual meeting this year. Mm-hmm. And we look forward next spring, actually, to to getting back together. It was our 10-year anniversary. Oh, no. Uh, so we actually brought uh, Ginger Graham in to speak uh, to us all virtually. And she was the first keynote address at our first conference. So that was pretty special. Um, and then one of the other tenets of that organization is to always have a, a patient advocate. And so we had a, a patient advocate speak at this year's meeting as well, which, um, you know, which is just always brings everything back home for us in the medical device industry. Oh, that's a great perspective to include in, in, in programs. So how did you uh, come upon Zenflow and were there any sort of uh, familiar characteristics uh, that led you to join the company? Maybe you could just tell me why you joined the company rather than my speculate. Sure. Well, you're, you're right on it. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, it's, it's easy to see the potential in Zenflow. I, I got connected initially from um, board members that, that I know and, and Nick and Shreya have attracted you know, really experienced capital um, based on the, the credibility of the company they've developed. Um, so I'd say first and foremost, you know, it's, it's easy to see the potential in the team. Um, from Nick and Trey, the co-founders, to the leadership team. There's a lot of enthusiasm throughout the company, and uh, and the degree of talent is exceptional. Uh, and I did see a number of parallels between the Intersect ENT experience. Um, both address large markets. Um, as Nick mentioned, you know, BPH or a large prostate is, is prevalent. It happens in most men as they age. And and starting young, so about half of patients by the end of their 50s have symptoms. So it is a it is a large market that's in need of solutions, um, which brings me to the second point. The, both companies have developed solutions that make treatment more appealing to patients. And in the BPH space, there's already been a shift in a number of investments and innovation that have moved the needle from you know, more extensive surgery to uh, less invasive procedures. And as Nick mentioned, this just takes that to a whole nother level. And we believe introduces a, a, another category of being able to treat without impacting the tissue by preserving the natural anatomy and doing so in a way that allows for a comfortable procedure, which gets to one of the third parallels, which is you know, both are focused on moving treatment to lower cost and more convenient settings of care, mainly the office. Um, and while these procedures can be done anywhere, that shift making it again more a comfortable procedure, the less invasiveness means faster recovery and without sacrificing outcomes. So outcomes are durable as well. So those three things, there's there's a number of parallels between those businesses. And, and I see the potential here at Zenflow to really build a big, successful business. Nick, what was uh, this? Is, is this your first startup or did you start a company up previous to this? I'm trying to remember. I had one done. company I co-founded. Um, before this, it was called New Rep at the time. Now it's Avail Med Systems, um, which is a telemedicine oh. solution. That's um, I don't know if they've been on the podcast. The current team, they have, sure, wow, yeah, it's, it's done done pretty well in in recent years. I never I never knew you were uh, connected to that. So well, wow, that's great. You've got you're building yourself quite the uh, 
quite the tree of, uh, of med tech startups that you're involved with. Uh, with, with Zenflow, what was, uh, you, you raised some money in June. We can talk about that. I'd love to learn about how, what that process was like. But what was it uh, about now that told you it was time to start building out the executive team? As we mentioned, we're getting into this pivotal study mm-hmm. now. So the plan is to enroll the study. It's you know 200 plus patients. It's going to be a, a big endeavor and then get about 12 months follow-up. Then we'll launch the product to market. So at this, this is a good stage to build the team out and get people like Susan on board that can help us prepare for a commercial launch and uh, help us develop our strategy as we get closer to market and get out there to to more urologists and more patients. Um, so that along with uh, you know the Series B financing are meant to prepare us to, over the next couple of years, get ready for a really strong commercial launch. And how did you uh, come to, uh, to connect with Susan? Susan came in uh, through some of our board members. I think it was um, our board member from Invis, as well as Andrew Cleland, who's our board mm-hmm. chairman. And they both had really strong opinions of her. They had, I think she had had known them or at least Andrew for, for a while. So she came in highly recommended and, you know, seemed like the perfect fit for us at this stage of the company to prepare us for that commercial launch and this ramping up of the company. Um, so we're very fortunate that she's, she joined and, you know, has been more than, than what was advertised mm-hmm. since she uh, joined the team. That's great. And, and how, uh, how does it feel having a startup sort of move into uh, the big company phase? Your, your work with Avail, I think, happened primer, earlier than it, than it getting even close to a, a commercial stage. How does it feel, again, to have that idea turn into a product and a product turn into a, a sizable company, an increasingly sizable company? It's hard hard to believe that that things are are at this stage. When when you start in the beginning, it's it's hard to see envision the whole pathway to, to where we are now. It's been great to see. It's it's great to see the evolution of the company. It things really do change from the early days. We started back in my garage, just myself and Shreya, and uh, it's really gone through all the different stages and has become a different kind of company. You know, from one year to the next, and it's it's exciting. It's it's great to have this at this stage. Now we're now almost thirty employees and expanding our trials beyond what we we had before. It's it's really you know it's it's um, definitely a ramping up the level of of effort that's required of everybody, but. Uh, we're all very excited to have this trial go underway. I love that it actually started in, in a garage. Do you, do you still have that garage in case it needs to be a museum someday? I moved to a new house, unfortunately. <laughs> you convinced the, the owner now to, to uh, you know put a plaque up or something like that. <laughs> That's great. Well, Susan, so uh, what lessons are you taking from uh, from the growth at Intersect? What are some lessons that others listening to the podcast who are growing their companies? Uh, what are some things they should pay attention to? What are some uh, problems that you've encountered at Intersect that you've learned to overcome? Yeah, I always say you start with the end in mind and and that might change over time. But, you know, at least for a startup, kind of lo- always looking towards you know, what do you need to do to, to build your valuation? You know, is this going to matter a year from now? You know, I, I think a lot of times you can get mired in some of the day-to-day uh, fire drills, if you will. Um, and it, But ultimately, you need to prioritize what's most important and, and kind of thinking ahead of, gosh, you know, is this how important is this to the big picture? You know, what's going to matter versus kind of sometimes what's what pops up um, each and every day, which could be important and, and might be. Um, but again, it's uh, you need to, to, again, help prioritize your work because if you try to do everything all at once and kind of just get 
pulled in too many directions. And so good to always just have goals, focus uh, for the team. And then I always say, you know, we, the team has to earn the right to the get to the next stage. So, you know, for this team, we need to earn the right to submit to FDA, you need to earn the right to, to spend the money to launch that product. Um, you need to earn the right to eventually scale. And if you start thinking about it that way, again, I feel like it helps formulate and make your, make your goals more concrete. A couple other things I would say is, you know, always thinking about how to build the company as a, as a standalone business. And that doesn't mean scale and do things unnaturally, but always be looking towards what might be required. What's, you know, I think it goes back to starting with the end in mind, what story do you, do you need to be able to tell um, going into the next phase? Mm-hmm. And then finally, you just, just surround yourself with talented people, you know, is feel like you, you need to look at where, um, where the, gaps are what you're going to, again, what are you going to need a year from now and make sure you're, you're thinking and starting to talk with those individuals early and often um, because sooner than you know what you're going to need them. And Nick, looking forward, what do you see Zenflow becoming? Uh, is this a, a, a company slash product uh, and that's going to be the entire story or is this a technology that's leverageable to, to uh, other applications? And Susan, you're free to, to chime in after, after Nick. Right now, we're really focused on developing this device for for BPH. So that's that's the goal now. That the team is 100% focused on mm-hmm. um, getting through this trial and making this product as as good as possible for commercial launch. And beyond that, I mean, there there could be other applications. We do have this flexible scope that we've developed ourselves that you know could be interesting for other applications in neurology or beyond. So we are thinking towards that potential future of becoming a company that has multiple products. It's a, you know, bigger standalone company. Uh, But for now it's really focused on getting this treatment that we have now to be as safe and effective as possible and as patient friendly as possible. And Susan, does that match up? Is this, is this part of that, uh, that focus, just focus on this one, this one area and then, and then tackle the, the future applications later, perhaps. Yeah, I, I agree with that very much. It's, you know, there's, it's important to sit down periodically and think about all the different ways you can build your business. I know we did that at Intersect ENT too. I led an annual sit down and look at what do we look like when we grow up, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, But day to day, again, you've got to, you've got to focus on first things first. And again, it goes back to that earning the right to, uh, to build the business and, and you've got to, build your credibility on, on product number one. The only other thing I'll say is, you know, I, I think about the potential paths and look at the recent acquisition of Intersect ENT yep. um, by Medtronic. And I think about some of the decisions that went into, you know, along the way, do we invest in R&D? How do we build the value? There was different directions we could have taken in the past. And, we always knew the value that we could build as a business. And I, and I think that was a good North star of, um, you know, do we go public? Do we chart our own course? Do we seek different options? Do we invest in an R and D program when, um, but first and foremost, it was really important to, to get product number one 
developed, proven out to the market. Um, but then right alongside of that and, and when it's going to launch, really start thinking about pipeline and where we need to invest. And I, I see that um, same course of action uh, very much playing out here at Zenflow. Terrific. And uh, I just want to uh, follow up on the on the Pivotal Trial. Uh, when do this, I'm sorry, you're currently enrolling for your Pivotal Clinical Trial. Do you have any estimate, uh, Nick or Susan, as to you know when you'd like to have some results? Is that something you can even forecast at this point? Yeah, we have, we have targets for enrollment. Um, I'd say, you know, within a year, give or take, we expect to, to have it enrolled and then uh, it'll be a year of follow-up. So um, yeah, I mean, at some point in that time frame, we should, should have the data. We'll, you know, in this, this day and age, it's always, it's a, it's a different world and it's hard to predict how these things will go, but mm-hmm. um, that's roughly what we're targeting. Excellent. And is the trial being, uh, are you, are you compared to, are you comparing it to another therapy or is it, uh, is it, uh, your product versus no treatment at all? It's against a sham treatment. So two to one randomized okay. against a basically simulated procedure and, gotcha. uh, those patients. So the sham patients, they do get to cross over at three months. So if they want to undergo our treatment after they, uh, go through that three month follow up. They can go and enroll in this crossover arm. All right, we'll be uh, be following the story for sure. And uh, thanks for uh, introducing us to uh, to Zenflow. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. Thanks for having us, Tom. Appreciate it. All right, and we're back. We had a we had a say goodbye to Sean Hooley. He had a, a big interview, so uh, we're here now with uh, with Brian and Jim. And Jim, uh, introduce number three on the New Marcus Newsmakers. Number three. Koya Medical reports positive early results in their Dayspring lymphedema trial. So Koya Medical announced some positive results from a small but ongoing trial comparing its Dayspring compression treatment for lymphedema to a more traditional pneumatic compression pump. We heard about this Oakland-based company last month when they secured FDA 510K clearance for the device. And at the time, they said it was the first such approval for an active compression treatment that enabled movement and mobility with patients who have lymphedema or similar condition affecting lymphatic flow in upper and lower extremities. This is, you know, a condition that affects an estimated 20 million Americans. It's progressive, it's incurable, causes painful swelling in the arms, legs, or other regions. And it's commonly caused by cancer treatment. So what they did is they took a, a study in which uh, half of the people uh, randomly got the Dayspring device and the other half uh, got the other, uh, the more traditional device, tried it for an hour a day for four mm-hmm. weeks, and then everybody pretty much took a four-week pause and switch devices, and they reported how they were feeling about uh, their quality of life, which one they preferred, and they also studied reduction in limb volume, trying to keep that swelling down. And so uh, apparently Dayspring is saying, even though they're still enrolling patients, you know, this results only covers the first 37 participants who have gone through that whole 12-week comparison. Uh, they've got about 50 patients enrolled now. Um, but so far, they see, they're see they seeing uh, some significant uh, results and uh, positive results. So they're, uh, they're moving on. Great stuff. No, no, great, great wrap up. And we had uh, the CEO, Andy, Andy Durswamy on the podcast back in, in August. And uh, he's got a, a great story. He started the company to, to help his father. His father suffers from, uh, from this. So uh, it's great that they're making progress. All right. And Brian Bunce, I understand you have our number two new Marcus Newsmakers. 
So the, the news from yesterday is FDA panel unanimously backed Moderna boosters, which was not really that surprising, but there were some kind of caveats that were in the meeting. Some people had questions about kind of the durability of their protection, about the data that Moderna presented during the event yesterday. So we'll have to keep an eye on kind of what the advice is coming out from FDA and CDC going forward. That's great. I mean, I, I'm, as I've talked about in the podcast, I'm a J&J guy, and uh, I've kind of been confused by the the data that came out initially showed, I thought, that the second J&J booster was uh, a great effect, but it seems like there's some questions raised about that. And now I saw something else suggesting the mRNA booster of, uh, of a J&J vaccine works quite well. So uh, kind of waiting for the dust to settle. Yeah, they're meeting actually today to talk about the Janssen vaccine as well to make a determination about boosters. But to your point as well, there was an expert in the call, um, Dr. Carilla from NIH, who raised some points about the mRNA vaccines as well and their durability. So he said that it appears that they're, um, the antibodies from them last in the range of four to eight months or so. So he's he wonders if there is a suboptimal dosing interval that's happened to date, if that might be adjusted. Or he wondered if maybe there was an inherent issue with the mRNA platform and like the the durability protection. So it seems like there still is like protection against severe disease, but mm-hmm. all the quote unquote breakthrough infections was something that um, was somewhat controversial. Some of the people in the panel didn't like that term because the vaccines continue to offer strong protection against death or ending up in the hospital. But mm-hmm. long story short, I guess we need to kind of keep an eye on how the vaccines are performing. So who knows if we'll need to have vaccines once a year or, or what going forward. Yeah, no, it'll be interesting to watch. I've got a couple of trips in a couple of weeks. So I wish I could get boosted before I go, but it's not not looking likely. All right. Well, let's uh, let's roll into number one, the new Marcus Newsmakers. Jim, back to you. What is uh, what is the big winner this week? Number one, Alogic uh, this week announced a $160 million deal to acquire Boulder Surgical, which is a Colorado-based developer and manufacturer of some advanced energy vessel sealing surgical devices. So this deal on its own, not a huge deal, but when you look at the pattern from Hologic, they have been uh, on a tear uh, spending all of their diagnostics business COVID cash from their COVID-19 testing globally, mm-hmm. uh, putting it to work. So uh, Boulder Surgical's laparoscopic vessel sealing, dividing, and dissecting device are going to join Hologic's surgical portfolio when the deal closes, expected by the end of this year. Uh, this is just the latest example of Hologic putting that cash uh, to work. And these are the sort of deals you're going to see from them. They, they think that they can take these pediatric applications and apply them to OBGYN. So you'll see Hologic in the MDO edition coming out soon. We've uh, talked to their CFO, Carlene Overton, about managing during the pandemic and making some key decisions at the beginning to build up this cash and then deploy it in ways that can position the company for long-term growth. And so we talked with her and then caught up with uh, CEO Steve McMillan as well about their appetite for those really big deals like you saw from Sinusure, which wasn't probably the best chapter. And he says they've learned a lot. They saw the importance of bolstering their base businesses so they can consider acquisitions more from a position of strength rather than viewing them as a necessity. And they learned really about the importance of staying true to their M&A strategy, focusing on division-led tuck and acquisitions that leverage their existing strengths rather than trying to establish new lines of business. So they're still on the hunt. It says all their divisions are still looking for uh, potentials to buy. And as far as deal size, yeah, they're looking for those smaller transactions that are going to fit with their cash flow and can be integrated more effectively rather than these large transformational acquisitions. 
Great stuff. Wow. All right. You're going to be a welcome addition to this, uh, this podcast team, uh, Jim. Thanks for, uh, thanks for filling in for Chris. Well done. And before I begin my keynote interview with Megan Scanlon of Boston Scientific, it's my pleasure to bring in Dave Howard. Dave is the business development manager at KNF. Dave, I know KNF has been busy lately. What's new? What can you talk about? Thanks a lot, Tom. Um, well, as you've already heard, you know, KNF is a manufacturer of both liquid and gas diaphragm and piston pumps that have been used in many applications around the world. Our main focus here in the U.S., though, has been with medical devices and especially diagnostic systems. Recently, we have noticed an increased drive for fluidic systems that reduce or completely remove the existence of pulsation, which is typically generated by pumps within the circuit. So we have actually been really hard at work to develop an entirely new line of what we call smooth flow products. Pulsation is nearly impossible to avoid with many pump technologies. Half the time the pump is drawing liquid in and the other half of the time it's pushing liquid out. So no matter how fast you run the pump, you still have this stop and start motion of the liquid, which basically leads to what we feel and hear in tubing when it's shaking and vibrating around. So at times, uh, the pressure fluctuations generated by the pulsation can lead to all types of problems. It can cause cavitation and air bubbles in the media. Uh, The vibrating tubing itself can be felt throughout the system, which could impact the accuracy of analytical devices and so forth. Uh, Tubing in the system actually ends up wearing quicker. And over time, this could lead to sporadic leakages. And also, you have this inconsistent performance basically depending on what types of restrictions you have in the lines. So KNF has essentially fixed this problem with this new line of smooth flow and low pulse products. We call them our FP product line, and we can accommodate flow rates as low as just a few milliliters per minute, all the way up to 12 liters per minute, and uh, operating pressures up to six bar. So with all of the changes that went into the design and the development of these products, we're actually now seeing a more efficient pump. And this is both from a size standpoint, as well as regarding power consumption. Vibration is, of course, minimized. Stress on tubing is now reduced. And there's much less chance of cavitation. And with these lower peak-to-peak pulsation fluctuations, we're actually expecting much longer-lasting pumps uh, with much less stress on the motor or bearings and so forth. So really, we're just really excited to get more of these pumps into these medical device industry. And we're already seeing some really positive feedback from our customers. Well, thanks again to KNF for sponsoring this podcast. Thanks to Dave Howard and Dave Vanderbeck of KNF for sharing their thoughts. If you want to find out more information, you can go to knf.com. You can also send an email to Dave Howard. He is at dave.howard at knf.com. Now let's hear from Megan Scanlon from Boston Scientific. Well, Megan Scanlon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tom. Nice to be here. Great to have you. And uh, great to talk about uh, Boston Scientific's urology business. It's an interesting part of the company. And I know you've had uh, had some news of late. We'll talk about the Luminous acquisition in a bit. But uh, first, I want to just find out a bit about your personal path into MedTech and to Boston Scientific. What was your uh, your first job in MedTech and how did you decide to join this industry? Yeah. So, well, my first job in MedTech was actually um, in medical devices and orthopedics. Ah. But Yep, but I started my career. Actually, I'm a I'm a uh, recovering mechanical engineer. <laughs> um, in my in my previous life, I was a mechanical engineer, and I worked in the beginning of my professional career after undergrad at the Gillette Company, uh, designing oh, razors, which was a pretty remarkable job, and 
I actually ended up leaving Gillette to go to graduate school. I went to MIT where I got my master's in engineering and my MBA. And that was really the springboard, if you will, for me to change industries and uh, jump into healthcare and, and medical devices. So I spent 15 years with Johnson & Johnson, actually, in their sports medicine business, hmm. um, all climbing through different roles, marketing operations, finance, and then came to Boston Scientific. I knew a couple of the leaders here, including our very own CEO, Mike Mahoney, and made that jump about, gosh, seven years ago now. And I haven't looked back since. It's been, it's been a great, a, it was a great move for me. And uh, it's been a lot of fun being here. I would love to drill down on that moment when you decided to shift gears uh, and to move from mechanical engineering and to, to get those additional degrees. What, what went into that thought process and, and how difficult a decision was that? You know, so it was actually a very distinct project I was working on. I was very fortunate to be working in the kind of front end of the Venus Razor development. So that's the women's sort of mm -hmm. shaving platform that Gillette developed. And this was before we even knew what it was really going to look like. And it allowed me to see and work with the marketing team, see the way they looked at the market, see the way they were trying to influence how the market was going to be shaped, got the opportunity to work with actual consumers, right? Women sitting on benches in small rooms with water coming out of the wall, shaving <laughs> their legs, letting us know how they felt about the ergonomics of different handle designs. And, and that really is when my brain opened up to go, wow, there's something bigger out there. Mm -hmm. And I had anticipated I would just go part-time at night um, and get my MBA because it was candidly, it was the only way I could afford it at the time. And I stumbled across this fellowship program at MIT where I was able to go get both of my master's degrees at the same time, which wow. itself was a harrowing uh, journey. <laughs> but the fellowship program at the time covered most of my tuition. So it made it financially viable for me to make that change. And candidly, I made that change not knowing what industry I wanted to go into. And the year I, I graduated in 2000 from MIT when it was dot-com everything. And very few people were interested in healthcare, but there was just something about helping patients and helping people and doing something that was technical still, even though I wasn't planning to go back into an engineering profession. And so it was really just the perfect marriage of the two sides of my brain, right? The, the left and right half of uh, this gray matter in my skull that medical device marketing was the perfect kind of next step for me. So I was the lone wolf who kind of jumped into healthcare at that dot-com boom time and Turned out that was a pretty fortunate uh, decision. Yeah, for sure. No, I made a similar decision when 1998 I started covering medical devices instead of dot com and, oh, and technology, right? and we were not that we were definitely not the coolest kids in the block back then. No, everyone's like, "You're doing what?" <laughs> <laughs> but you can make you can go to Vegas and cover cover consumer shows. It's like, yeah, and, well. and I ended up. It's funny, right? Not 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 a year and a half, two years later, I just started getting a ton of phone calls from people who were realizing that. You know, that dot com train didn't yeah. didn't end in the station they expected it to. So I'm super pleased I, I came to medical devices. It's just been an incredibly rewarding career. Um, my journey at, at Johnson and Johnson was awesome, but now you know here I am at, at Boston Scientific, seven years into my tenure here, and I have one of the coolest jobs in the company. Right, I, I have the honor of serving as the president of this division, and it has been a fun and wild ride. 
I want to I want to talk about the division in a minute, but just one more question yeah. about your your journey. So uh, most division leaders, it seems, come from sales and marketing. Uh, you're coming with an engineering perspective. Lisa, earlier on, it was part of your DNA. Uh, I guess any lessons learned of being being an engineer in in sort of in this role is it is it any different? Are you drawing on those engineering skills, or, or have you definitely put those behind you and you and you've kind of become more of the marketing person? I love this question. I actually get asked it quite a bit. So I will never, ever completely put my engineering skills behind me, right? Mm -hmm. The nice thing about medical devices is it's very technical, both the biomechanics of the procedures that we're doing, as well as the biomechanics of how the devices work, Mm -hmm. the loads that they have to go under, the energy that is being deployed. It's very, very technical. And so my learning curve to kind of understand the technical aspects of these procedures, of these devices, and of what surgeons are trying to accomplish was quite quick. And my my journey in medical devices has largely mostly been in marketing um, with a little bit of sales management throughout. And so I'd say my foundation was sort of poured. (laughs) My technical foundation was poured in undergrad and in those early years at Gillette and then in that graduate work. But it's, it's really been the commercial part of my med tech journey since I joined Johnson & Johnson in 2000, where the rest of the house was built. And, and it's, been, it's been quite nice because I feel like it's made me a very well-rounded business professional. So the transition for me, oftentimes when we pull people out of classic sales backgrounds, so much of their hill they have to climb is getting familiar with the technical aspects of what we do. And obviously there's a clinical lift relative to the learning paradigm and learning all sorts of anatomical names and procedural names, et cetera. But um, that, that part of the journey for me was, was easier. Interesting. Oh, that's great. Great point. All right. Well, let's talk about the, the business that you're leading, uh, Boston Scientific Urology business. What, what areas are, does that cover? What, what are your lead products? Kind of introduce this to, to, to sure. what you do. Sure. So we actually, our urology and pelvic health business is, is quite broad. Uh, I'd say the, our biggest business is our kidney stone franchise. And that's where surgeons have to go up the ureter, find the kidney stone, oftentimes lodged in the kidney and, and break it up into tiny pieces, right? So they can extract it and patients can go back about their daily lives and hopefully not have to expel large stone fragments. Because uh, if you've ever known anybody who's had a kidney stone, uh, it is described as being more excruciating than natural childbirth. So kidney stones is our largest business. Um, and then we have a pretty broad men's health portfolio, which includes BPH, prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. That's, that's our prostate health portfolio. We have a business called prosthetic urology. And that is really, there's two components for that business that helps to cure men with erectile dysfunction, as well as male urinary incontinence. Interestingly enough, both of those conditions oftentimes can be some of the complications associated with radical prostatectomies, which is a a third of the men who have prostate cancer end up choosing radical prostatectomy to basically just remove the prostate in its entirety. Hmm. Um, And then we have a small business in pelvic floor disorders for women. So it's a pretty broad, complex spectrum, different patient populations, very uh, different types of technologies from permanent implantables to more transient energy devices that are used during the procedure and everything in between. And how have the last couple of years been for you? And I'm speaking specifically the last uh, 18 months or so with, with COVID. Uh, this is an area I imagine that was hit hardest with hospitals either locking people out or just focusing exclusively on, on yeah. COVID or almost exclusively on COVID. I'll actually answer your question through two lenses, sort of personally and professionally, because mm-hmm. side note, I, I took 
I was given the opportunity to lead this business in February of 2020. So it's, you know, one month before wow. at least the world in the United States shut down. Um, and so my tenure as president of the division coincides all too, all too closely with, with the COVID pandemic. Here's what I'll say. Obviously, we have more of an elective procedure base. While dealing with BPH, dealing with urinary incontinence are things that absolutely alter, and not for the better, patients' quality of life, those oftentimes are things that can be wait, you know, you can delay those for, for a bit. So during the first surge of COVID, we absolutely saw a, a pretty significant decline in our business. And the good news is, is, our, you know, our team was really resilient and adaptable and we made sort of smart decisions to weather the storm. But I'll tell you, as, as elective procedures came back, it came back roaring. I've learned that urology has a pretty, a pretty springy rubber band resiliency, if you will. Mm-hmm. Because uh, these urologists are all wildly committed to getting back to caring for their patients, right? The urology service line, particularly in hospitals in the United States, is, a, is an important profit driver for hospitals. And they were really keen to get back to delivering patient care in a service line that is financially healthy for them. So we saw a beautiful resilience in the business. You know, throughout some of the COVID surges, we definitely continue to see a bit of a softening, but nothing ever of that order of magnitude that we saw in that very first sort of shutdown, if you will, that happened in that March timeframe of, of 2020. So we are dealing through a little bit of a, a bit of a whipsaw from time mm-hmm. to time as, as certain geographies have to lock down. But thankfully, much of our procedure base is also done on an outpatient basis. That's right. So the resiliency of surgery centers, of office-based procedures have proven to be um, a good characteristic of this market you know, during such uncertain times. So we have weathered the storm quite nicely, despite the pandemic. And we're seeing a resiliency of our business across the globe, right? As, as obviously, um, you know, 70% of my business is, is here in the United States, 30% is international, mm-hmm. but that international business does continue to crank away, even despite and through some of these, some of these downturns, if you will. Mm-hmm. What percentage of the business is done in uh, ASCs? Uh, well, in the ASCs, it's less than a quarter of our business. I just okay. don't know the I don't know the exact number, but it's not okay. like half of our business. The vast majority of our procedures, though, are done on an outpatient basis. Even when they're done in the hospital, it'll be hospital hospital outpatient. There's only probably you know low double digits where patients are staying overnight. Did, did you see any sort of impact on patients? The delay that that they uh, in, in in receiving treatments as the, as the condition of folks change at all? Those who've come back, or is it pretty much picked up at the same clip and with the same severity as it as it did when uh, things first started to to shut down? Yeah. So in in some of the early shutdowns, we definitely saw some patient hesitancy, right? I mean, I think there was a lot of unknowns, a lot of uncertainty. But as some of the COVID impacts started to lift, we saw patients really eager to get back to living. And urological conditions oftentimes can be the thing that have patients not doing the things they love, right? I had the opportunity to go see a football game last night, right? A, a man suffering from urinary incontinence or BPH mm-hmm. struggles with making a decision to go, whether they're going to go spend three and a half hours in a football stadium, right? And so what we found is during some of the summer months and as vaccinations rolled out, the appetite for patients to finally get the care that they had been waiting for for so long really did come back in pretty full full force. So that was nice to see. I think that 
the resiliency of our patients and their desire to live their best lives. I think if anything strengthened during COVID. Now there are times again, when there are surges in geographies where patients might have hesitation and just be like, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna stay home for now. But typically they do come back into the healthcare ecosystem to get that treatment that they had originally set out to get. Gotcha. We had talked recently with, uh, well, I replayed interviews recently with Dave Pierce and, and Brian Duncan. I talked to them actually last year about single-use endoscopes. Yep. How big a role do they play in in your urology business? And, and is that an area that's growing? Without doubt. And that's no different in, in urology and pelvic health. So mm. Boston Scientific, we actually created the first disposable, flexible ureteroscope. Oh. Uh, this is a product called LithoView. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, So fun fact, I actually spent my first three and a half years at Boston Scientific working in our endoscopy business uh, and was able to be a part of that disposable scope uh, innovation journey. And I was delighted when I came over to urology and pelvic health to see the way LithoView has just transformed the market. So we're five years. We launched that in 2017. Um, we're five years into that product launch and it continues to grow double digits for us. It is a, is a huge growth driver. It continues to grow around the world. We've obviously seen, you know, lots of competition come in, but it hasn't slowed our role. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we continue to continue to bring value into hospitals, into ambulatory surgery centers all around the world. How is it being received by the, the clinical community and what are the benefits? What are the selling points to, uh, to using it? So, so for, for kidney stones and in urology, it's, it's, it's a couple of benefits. So first and foremost, right, it's always ready. It's always mm-hmm. sterile. And urology is a specialty right now that has more demand than it actually has supply, right, in terms of physician capacity. So I mean, we've seen surgery centers that have moved completely to disposable ureteroscopes because of the, just the efficiency benefit of how they're able to run their clinical practice um, sure. absolutely outweighs the reprocessing burden. Second, the device wor- always works, right? So kidney stones, you have to torque these devices in some pretty tight radius bends again and again and again. And when you multiply that across multiple surgeries for reusable scopes, there's also times where you go in and you have a very complicated lower pole, a kidney stone that's located in the lower pole of the kidney. And you've got to really twist and torque that device. And sometimes if your reusable scope is in its later stages of needing to be serviced, Mm -hmm. the last thing you want to have happen in those complicated procedures is have the, is have the reusable scope sort of have to be swapped out because it can't make that torturous curve. So what we have found is that in complex cases, disposable ureteroscopes like LithoView really help the device always be kind of game time ready. Uh, oftentimes they'll, they'll call it the sort of resident proof scope, right? So when a resident is learning how to use a scope and tends to be a little bit rougher on it, sometimes it's better to put a disposable scope in their hand versus a ridiculously <laughs> expensive reusable one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then lastly, right, it's always sterile. We see research being done by the FDA, warnings being issued by the FDA across all reusable, long, skinny tube right, scopes. Disposable scopes bring the benefit of sterility. Mm-hmm. Um, and just in April of this past year, we saw that the FDA had kind of issued a, uh, an investigation report of infections that were associated with reprocessed urological endoscopes. And we see this across duodenoscopes, bronchoscopes, which is a big part of the reason why Boston Scientific, we've invested as heavily as we've had on the endoscopy side as well. Mm-hmm. 
And what was the, if you could put your engineering hat on for a second, what, what, is the, what has happened technically or technologically that has allowed for the creation of these disposable scopes that I imagine have, as you said, have to have the functionality, have to have the imaging, have to work as well as a reusable scope. You, you, would, you wouldn't think that would be possible. That's something you would throw away. <laughs> Couldn't perform as well as something that is reusable. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty remarkable engineering feat, right? There are times where you look at that and go, wow, I mean, for, for reusable scopes that sell for $30,000, $50,000 a pop, right, to be able to sell disposable scopes in the, in the low thousands is pretty in, incredible. If you look at the heritage of Boston Scientific, right, I mean, we are the masters of long catheter-based technologies, mm-hmm. guide wires, et cetera. So it's very much in our core competency. And as imaging chains, those used to be the most expensive part that initially, when you talk about it, you know, maybe a decade or so ago, uh, 15 years ago, rendered it almost financially not viable, right? The cost of the digital imaging chain and chips, the cost of those have come down so much that now so much of the complexity is really in just the precision engineering to be able to get you know, working channels, aspiration channels, mm-hmm. um, the the steer wires and all of the knobs all down these small seven, nine French devices, right? It's, it is pretty incredible, but we have a legacy of developing those long, skinny, sophisticated medical devices. So once the digital imaging chain started to become much more affordable, this was technology Boston Scientific was working on for a long time uh, before it actually hit the marketplace. So it is it is a pretty great engineering feat. You get a chance to see how innovation can truly transform the way care is delivered. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned chips. And I, I don't know if this is if this is related or not. Is there is there concerns about the shortage of supply of of chips? Uh, are those the chips that are being used in these devices and, and could it in, impede manufacturing of, of so single-use scopes? We, we have a pretty incredible global supply chain organization that's done a lot to get us a secure supply base for the, mm-hmm. for the chips that we need. It's obviously something we continue to stay close to as it as it affects a lot of different industries. I mean, we, sure. we, just, we just saw some of the automotive plants yep. sort of shut down because of that chip shortage, but Thankfully, we are in a position right now where that's not a concern for us, just based on the way our supply chain team plans and operates. But it's something we stay very, very close to. But nothing at this point that I anticipate disrupting my business. Interesting. Okay. Well, we're saving the, the biggest news, I think, for last. Uh, you recently closed on the acquisition of the global surgical business of Luminous. Uh, we did. Yeah, you sound very happy. Uh, tell us what that. Uh, tell us a bit about Luminous's surgical business and and what does that bring to to Boston Scientific? Yeah, I am I am over the moon excited about this acquisition. It it really is the perfect marriage. So, if you follow Boston Scientific, right, we talk a lot about category leadership for whatever business we operate in. We invest to both earn and sustain a category leadership position. All right, so that is a broad-based Boston Scientific statement. Urology, our urology business, we are the category leader in urology and and by a pretty wide margin. And when you look at, I talked about kidney stones being one of the bigger parts of our business. Uh, Our market leadership position in kidney stones is pretty significant. And in the kidney stone procedure, the tool that kind of does a lot of the heavy lifting, right, Mm -hmm. (laughs) is really performing a lot of the fundamental work is the laser fiber, right? So that laser fiber has to go up um, through the working channel, right, of, of the ureteroscope and in essence, break up that kidney stone into small enough pieces where they can be removed. 
So historically, some of that energy was brought to basically fragment up the stone so you could then go up with baskets and bit by bit mechanically remove those fragments from the patient. With advances led by Luminous, nonetheless, with advances in laser energy, we can now go in and, in essence, dust these stones. Right? So you pulverize these stones into tiny dust particles hmm. that can be aspirated out or candidly peed out, right? Mm. They, they, the natural fluid removal processes that the human body afford us all mm-hmm. allow you to kind of pee out that dust. And it has just brought much greater efficiency, better safety to those procedures. And efficiency is king, right? Sometimes you can sit there and, and if you're not using a high powered laser or a high performance laser, that part of the procedure can take hours. Hmm. So Boston Scientific category leader in urology, full stop, strong category leader in kidney stone procedures with our broad portfolio and luminous is the global category leader in urological lasers, right? So when you look at that, like one plus one equals three, it really is the perfect marriage. And and I know this because we have had the good fortune to be the exclusive commercial uh, distribution partner for the Luminous Laser Portfolio in the United States Mm -hmm. for the last 20 years. Oh, okay. We expanded that also to include a distribution partnership in Japan. So for the rest of the world, we had a, a we have and had a different laser portfolio that was more of a mid-watt offering, you know, that could get the job done, um, but didn't have that true meaningful innovation like this Moses waveform technology that Luminous has. And Moses was the, the first of its kind proprietary pulsed waveform. And what it does is it allows you to sort of initially that he's got this first pulse that separates the water. Mm-hmm. It creates this pathway for the laser energy. And then the second pulse is able to bust through that pathway and really deliver optimal energy to the stone. So it doesn't get wasted in the surrounding fluid. And that's done a lot to transform the way kidney stones are treated with many studies showing significant improvements in efficiency. So it's just, it's, we, we talk about category leadership. We talk about meaningful innovation and, Luminous Surgical is a business that is the category leader and has continued to redefine what that means with with their meaningful innovation pipeline. So I'm I'm thrilled that it's a part of our family now. That's great. So in terms of the procedures being done for kidney stones, are the majority of those still done that the old, the, the former way or the way you describe with, with, the, with the baskets retrieving the, the, the fragments or what percentage of, of procedures are done with some type of lasers at this point? So the, the vast majority of procedures are done with lasers mm-hmm. um, in terms okay. of the, in terms of the mix between those who fragment and those who dust, what we do know is the rate of preference for stone dusting is growing considerably. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been a big part of how we've been able to drive double digit growth in our laser franchise, in the United States for the last few years here, it's been that innovation, that pulsed waveform has done a lot to drive preference to these higher, higher performing laser technologies. Interesting. And, and you mentioned in the release, you're also bringing uh, members of the, the team over uh, yes. Luminous. So, so what type of employees are, are, are joining your uh, urology yeah. group? So was it now two weeks ago, we welcomed approximately 470 wow. employees to the Boston Scientific family. And that is a team dispersed across the globe. So let me start with 
our new laser center of excellence, which is based in Yokneum, Israel. Um, there you have some of the world's best laser engineers um, and kind of cross-functional teammates that bring these laser technologies to market, both in terms of how the R&D is done and then also how they're manufactured. So that's now a part of the Boston Scientific uh, manufacturing and engineering footprint. We now have, uh, you know, a foothold, if you will, in, in Israel, which is one of the hottest medtech innovation hubs. So we're thrilled about that. We brought, with the acquisition comes a pretty sizable team in China, um, which helps to grow our team footprint, as well as our business footprint there. Mm -hmm. Luminous did a beautiful job uh, developing a leadership position in China. We have a team, a service team and a commercial team that comes in Europe and then a large commercial organization and service and repair organization here in the United States. So, yeah, all in all, about 470 new family members in our EuroPH family. And uh, we're in the process of continuing to meet them all and welcome them into this this company. So we're, we're delighted to have them. That's great. And, and roughly how many employees did you have prior to the acquisition? Uh, we are a little over, let's see, in EuroPH, let's call it 22, 2400. Okay. So that's a, that's a big addition. That's yep. great. All right. Well, last question. And I, and I love that you had answered the earlier question about single use endoscopes with sort of the five year, you, five years ago, you were working on, on what you have today. I always ask, where are we going to be in five years from now in urology? What new technologies are being developed that, that will alter, change, improve yep. how, uh, how patients are cared for? Yeah. So you'll hear us talk about something called stone smart a lot. We have for the last couple of years, and it will continue to be a big part of the innovation story coming out of Boston scientific for kidney stones for the years to come. And I, I mentioned this, I mentioned this earlier, but we are emerging upon a pretty critical impasse, if you will, in the urological market, which is that for every new urologist that's coming into the specialty, it's estimated that there are 10 urologists ready to retire. Wow. Right. And the pace at which kidney stones are materializing across the human demographic, right, 12% of the population is going to have kidney stone disease at some point in their life. And the prevalence of that is, is growing at a pretty strong clip. So you see this onslaught of patient demand coming and it is not getting matched <laughs> with the capacity in urologists. So what does that mean? We've got to make sure we are making these procedures more efficient, more predictable, and more available to help patients. So I talked a lot earlier about the, the lithotripsy part of the procedure, right? When you go in and you use laser energy to break up the stone. That by far is the longest part of the procedure. And as importantly, it's the most unpredictable part of the procedure. It has mm -hmm. the highest degree of variability. So we are working on a comprehensive ecosystem of technology platforms that can operate independently. So imaging, right? LithoView, beautiful imaging device. We have, we're already leapfrogging ourselves at the end of this year with a scope that now allows you to monitor and measure pressure in the kidney, right? When you're in there doing a lot of work in the kidney, you're, you're adding fluid, you're adding energy, and the pressures can be highly variable. We want to basically be able to give that pressure speedometer, if you will, to the physician. Fluid management, right? How are you managing the fluid to, to manage pressure, to manage visibility, to manage temperature? Mm -hmm. And then lastly, the energy source, right? Which is the laser, the laser fiber. How do you modulate your energy source based on what you see? 
not every stone is created equal. Some stones are soft, some are hard, some are small, some are ginormous. <laughs> and, and, and we're working on this interconnected ecosystem, which we're calling intelligent intrarenal surgery, where each of these platforms, whether it be scope, fluid management, or laser energy, can work in their own right on their own with meaningful clinical advantage. But we are going to work to be connecting that ecosystem through something called Stone Cloud, which is this sort of AI that sits on top of it and allows these systems to talk to one another with the aim of speed, predictability, efficiency, and improved clinical outcomes. So we're really working to take a completely ground up. How do you re-engineer the system? Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you take a procedure and make it more reproducible, make it safer, um, and make it faster? So hospitals can do a better job of scheduling their day so they can get more patients through the system than what they're currently able to do with the high degrees of variability they see. That's the aspiration we're working towards. And uh, we just recently relaunched our StoneSmart sort of digital um, hub and site where we continue to educate mm-hmm. physicians and hospitals on these emerging capacity gaps, as well as these innovations as they roll out what they do to enable better information, better decision-making and better outcomes. Sounds great. Is there, what is, what is usually the first sign of, uh, of kidney stones? What is it discomfort from the patients or are there other ways to diagnose or or detect as a way of, as is is there a way of of maybe starting the race earlier before they even become something that causes discomfort? Yeah, I like, I like that question a lot, right? I mean, so obviously there's imaging modalities that you could use to try to see if there's a kidney stone there. But typically, you know, the healthcare environment is such that they tend to um, be very disciplined with when and how they deploy more expensive imaging modalities, right? right. Uh, to, to check if there's, to check if there are underlying conditions. So it does tend to be, you know, a presentation of pain, sort of, you know, diffuse, but deep pain that oftentimes is the reason why a a, a patient kind of shows up not knowing what's wrong. And Hey, I've had this, I've had this, this pain for X number of weeks here. Sometimes it is a very acute pain, Mm -hmm. but oftentimes it does start with that more diffuse pain. So as of today, there's, there's no technology that we've seen that sort of cost effectively would be preemptively deployed to sort of screen for kidney stones. Um, There is a lot one can do around, you know, around diet to try to manage kidney stone formation. What we find is that for patients who have formed a kidney stone, um, they're much more likely to form another one. Mm -hmm. And so there are some diet modifications, you know, staying hydrated, avoiding sodas. There are some things you can do to try to reduce the recurrence of kidney stone formation. So there are some nutritional support you can give to patients to try to um, mitigate the recurrence rates, mm-hmm. um, but no, no magic, no magic bullet just yet. Interesting. Well, as a, as a person in his early fifties, you've the, the chilling comment with the, with the dearth of uh, urologists in our future. Right now. As a man in, in your early fifties, right? 50% of men over the age of 50 will have BPH. Yeah. It's the number one reason why men go see their urologist. And it's another exciting reason why, you know, when we made an acquisition a couple of years ago with this technology called Resume, um, which is a procedure that can be done in the office. And with Luminous, one of their laser uh, 
approaches, this Moses technology actually is, does a really nice job of a surgical approach to BPH to enucleate the prostate, which sort of mm. just allows you to remove that, in, in essence, that, that enlarged gland to be able to provide that those symptom relief for men who suffer from BPH. So that's another, that's another benefit to this, to this acquisition that will allow us to strengthen our position in prostate health, um, but do it in a way that, you know, we aim for rapid definitive treatment of BPH um, symptoms. And both of these technologies seem like they do quite a good job with that. So. Fantastic. Well, keep up the, the good work. <laughs> I'm Pleasure glad you, for you, Tom. I appreciate that, <laughs> Megan. Thanks for, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it was my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Now is the time when we ask folks to find us and join us and link to us on social media. Brian Bunce, why don't you, uh, why don't you go first? Where can folks find you? You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm like the only Brian Bunce, I guess, that works in the Bay Area that you'll see. <laughs> and you don't tweet. You still don't tweet. <laughs> I, I don't, still don't. Good for you. Good for you. And Jim Hammerin, where can we uh, find you out there in social media land? Yeah, find me on LinkedIn. That's the best way to connect with me, catch up with what I'm reporting on, what I'm looking for, and uh, the kind of stories I've done before. How, uh, how have your first couple of weeks gone here? You know, they've been they've been good. It's a steep learning curve. I um, it feels a lot like when I worked with Chris Newmarker the last time and I was ramping up on covering financial institutions, banks, mm. private equity, those kinds of things. Um, but, you know, at the bottom, it's the same. You're trying to find uh, people who are making decisions and who are uh, trying to, you know, improve the industry and grow their companies. And um, it's been a lot of fun so far. And I'm just really blown away by how welcoming the, the entire team has been here. Uh, really just a, a great uh, top-notch uh, group of people. Uh, so thankful to be working with them. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, what we can do in the future. Terrific. Well, it's great to have you. And uh, folks out there, you can find me on uh, Twitter at MedTechTom. You can find me on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi, S-A-L-E-M-I. And uh, please do uh, reach out to us when you share this podcast episode on social media. We'd love to be part of that conversation. You can also subscribe to this podcast. We're on every major podcast channel, Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, as Chris would say, like, follow, subscribe. Uh, make sure you're one of the first to receive these uh, episodes as they come out. As I've noted before, we've got to uh, Hundreds, actually, sometimes a thousand people will listen to it before we even post it on uh, on our websites and out there in social media. So a lot of folks are taking us up on that offer. I hope you, you do, too. So that's it. Tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast waiting for you. Mm-hmm.